This is hell. Alex, let's start with an impromptu guessing game. Yesterday, Stephen Breyer, the Supreme Court Justice, announced that he is going to retire. Who are the two people who were the first ones I saw as potential nominees for his position on the Supreme Court? Can you guess who the first two names I saw suggested on social media to replace Stephen Breyer? Kyrie Irving? (laughs) That's a great one. One more guess, and then that's going to be it. Any more guesses? Uh, let me Google a person. <laughs> I think Teddy Roosevelt may come up. Who's the most popular person in the world today? Kim Kardashian? Uh, Googling a person reveals an image of, well, it's just a person. <laughs> All right. Uh, so congratulations these... to French Deputy Pierre Person. Damn, oh, okay. There's... A person. There you go. Not Chuck Person, the former uh, forward. I was about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, these are the first two names. The first name I saw that we should nominate or should be nominated as the replacement for Stephen Breyer, the Supreme Court Justice who is retiring. The first name I saw on social media was the very non-divisive nominee choice of Michelle Obama. The second one I saw was, so we have the wife of the former president of the United States, President Barack Obama. The second one was Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who in the New Yorker as well as Washington Post this week was reported that she causes a huge conflict of interest on many of the cases that Clarence Thomas has decided. So those are the first two nominees I saw out there that could bring together people in support for the next Supreme Court Justice. Is that the most ridiculous thing? you have ever heard, and is that entirely what you would expect? Uh, bad news for the Supreme Court, only God can judge me. <laughs> uh, actually, when you were saying Chuck Person, I was thinking of Wesley Person, oh. uh, the Heat player. <laughs> Something really satisfying about a person, last name Person. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Wasn't Chuck Person on the Bucks? I can't remember where he played. He played all over the place, but I think he started at the Bucks. I can't. I remember him playing in college. Damn, multiple people named Persons on uh, in the NBA. <laughs> Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. At the beginning of the pandemic, voices in the establishment media were telling us that we're all in this together. And sometimes you still hear them saying that to this day. Of course, here in the United States... With rampant inequality, whether it comes in the form of accessibility to face masks that could protect us from the virus or health care that can save our lives from the pandemic's deadly effects, we were never all in this together. Then the media seemed to shift from that claim that we're all cooperating to a more competitive stance, stating that we are suddenly engaged in a race to the cure. Sure, some vaccine campaigns actually still claim we are all in this together. But that's more a reflection of copywriters' lack of imagination, creativity, and grasp on reality than anything else. But the race to the cure, that could really get our nationalist competitive juices flowing. Every nation in a pitched battle against one another to see who would come out the victors and reap all of the benefits? Now, that's no way to run a global campaign against a global threat, but it's as if ending the virus no longer mattered and it was being replaced with a competition for national pride. It was a striking turn of rhetoric for a world that was plagued by a virus that does not know borders. Today, with several effective vaccines available, nations are distributing them not on a basis of need, but on other factors like financial profits and geopolitical power. 
Yes, China has used them to leverage power in Africa, but the real culprit here has been the United States, not only employing the vaccine against China in some global war for political influence, but also basing distribution on what is best for the bottom line of big pharma and the dominant pharmaceutical companies here in the United States and their lobbies. It's this unfair and unequal distribution of vaccines that is keeping the world from being inoculated against the virus and will keep them unprotected until at least 2025. In the meantime, who knows how many new variants will emerge, causing us to get additional boosters while many more will suffer and die. In a few minutes, we'll try to figure out why we can't get everyone vaccinated as soon as possible when we speak with Kevin Kleiman, who wrote the Jacobin Magazine article, Vaccine Apartheid Has Reinforced U.S. Empire. The Biden administration's lofty rhetoric about vaccine diplomacy is a blatant lie. The reality is that the U.S. government has actively upheld a system of vaccine apartheid that guarantees vaccine scarcity in the global south and reinforces U.S. Empire. Kevin is a researcher at the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. The Belfer Center is the hub of the school's research, teaching, and training in international security and diplomacy, environmental and resource issues, and science and technology policy. Kevin researches U.S.-China relations and has written data protection policies adopted by the World Health Organization. He is co-author of the December Belfer Center report, The Great Tech Rivalry, China versus the U.S. Prior to working at the Belfer Center, Kevin worked in human rights, international development, and affordable housing advocacy, combining community organizing and quantitative research. He also worked with the UN Global Post, the Secretary General's Initiative on Big Data and Artificial Intelligence for Development, Humanitarian Action, and Peace, as well as working with Stop Killer Robots, which is engaged in ensuring human control and the use of force. That campaign calls for new international laws on autonomy in weapons systems. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin underscore Kleiman. That's K-L-Y-M-A-N. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. How has your week gone so far, Alex? I understand there was a COVID scare again in your home, or am I breaking some sort of HIPAA rules here? Oh, I don't know. I just uh, be eating cough drops and reading J.G. Ballard books and going to sleep at 745 every <laughs> night. It is kind of wonderful, actually. There's uh, spectacular sledding conditions coming up this uh, weekend, by the way, and the fact that you live right by uh, Mount Trashmore in Evanston, uh, you should really take advantage of them with your kid this weekend because it's supposed to melt kind of today, get up to the mid-30s, so it gets all squishy. Ooh, give me that crust. Right, and then it's going to drop down to single t- digits again, so there's going to be a real intense layer of ice on the hill. So you should definitely not only bring your kid, but just go to watch the accidents over at Mount Trashmore. They're very, very entertaining. I've been involved in some of those accidents, and uh, blood was spilled. So uh, they got people snowboarding down that thing. It's very funny because if you live in Illinois, our idea of a mount is something that maybe goes up like 40 feet. Uh, So I see people carrying their snowboards up and then uh, snowboarding down for like one and a half seconds. And again, it's called Mount Trashmore for a reason. It is built of garbage. It is an artificial hill built of garbage, and it's probably the highest peak in, well, one of the highest peaks in the whole Chicagoland area. My week has been annoying. A guest canceled at the last minute, so we had to reschedule shows. The fire hazard that is my Christmas tree is still barely standing with wilted and dried out branches. Only a few ornaments still dangle from its drooping arms, still adorned with lights that at this point are nothing but a mockery. 
the virus is still going strong, so socializing with humanity other than my girlfriend and coming in here to do a show this week with either Alex or Sebastian or Richard, well, doing anything other than that is still pretty much verboten. So for me, this week has been frustrating. But at least I had great conversations with Corey Pine on Billionaires in Space and Ashwin Ravikumar who uh, talked to us about uh, stopping deforestation by providing basic services to the indigenous who can protect rainforests. So at least I got that going for me. But more important than my annoying yet oddly satisfying week, Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? That might be a good uh, question from hell for our guests. We've never actually applied the question from hell for our listening audience to our guests, so maybe... Maybe this time we should do that. Nah, I got a better question from hell written for him anyway. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. The t-shirt, tote bag, face covering, face mask, coffee mug. This is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to Anders P. of LaGrange, Illinois, who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support and picked up an enamel This Is Hell camping mug. Thanks, Anders, and after having only out-of-state listeners showing their support for several weeks, that's two in a row from Illinois after Jane C. of Chicago supported the show earlier this week. So thanks, Anders and Jane. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your response by the end of today's show. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. During this week's moment, Jeff continues to try to spread positivity. Alex will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Kevin on U.S. vaccine apartheid. Again, the question from hell is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know? when the pandemic is over. Joel G. emailed us at Chuck at com with a guest suggestion. And remember, you can send us your guest or topic suggestion or anything you want to say about This Is Hell, and we'll likely share it on the air. Just email us at Chuck at com. Joel writes, Chuck, I listened to Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, a Marxian economist and professor at the New School in New York. He had uh, two short interviews on one of his episodes with Professor Melissa Scanlon on her new book showing how co-ops are a better bet than traditional capitalist corporations to solve current ecological crises. You can find the episodes on YouTube. Professor Scanlon is the Lind B. Wilhine, I guess, no, Willine, Endowed Chair in Water Policy and the Director of the Center for Water Policy at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences. She is a professor in the School of Freshwater Sciences and affiliated faculty at UW-Madison Law School. Her book is titled Prosperity in the Fossil Fuel-Free Economy, which was published by Yale University Press in September, uh, summer of 2021. I thought she would be an excellent guest on This Is Hell. Cheers, Joel G., in Chattanooga. Thanks, Joel. Richard Wolf was on our show somewhat regularly until he started his own podcast and now his YouTube channel. And if Richard had Melissa on his show, then I would bet she's worth interviewing. The book Joel mentions that Melissa wrote, again, is called Prosperity and the Fossil-Free Economy. Yale Press's webpage of the book states, Scanlon provides a legal blueprint for creating alternate corporate business models that mitigate climate change, pay living wages, and act as responsible community members, including certified B Corps 
and benefit corporations with an emphasis on cooperatives. This book reveals the power and potential of cooperating as a unifying concept around which to design social enterprise achieving triple bottom line results for society, the environment, and finance. So what is B Corps, you ask? Apparently, it's a global nonprofit network transforming the global economy to benefit all people, communities, and the planet. And that's all I know. But you can find out more at bcorporations.net. Finally, Joel, you described Richard as a Marxian economist, not a Marxist economist. Is there a difference? And more importantly, is Marxian a word? I don't even know if that's a word. If anyone feels like answering that question, email me at chuckatthisishell.com. We also got an email from John B. John writes, hey, been listening to your show for maybe two months now. Uh, was sent your way by best of the left. Anyway, I've been trying to do more for the people around me without stable housing for the last year or so, but cannot find resources. I live in the northern area of Houston, Texas, and if you know my city, we are absolutely sprawling. I've looked for volunteer opportunities and otherwise... Uh, but virtually everything is uh, centered downtown. I would very much like to assist the people directly around me because downtown from here would be like an entire day of walking. Are there avenues and resources around me not advertised on Google I could look into? I'm almost positive the answer is no, but I'd like to hold out hope. I live in a pretty damn red state, and whenever I so much as mention possibly helping the less fortunate around me, someone is sure to remind me about our own personal responsibility for ourselves and how there are so many resources and programs available. Can you aim me at any of these supposedly abundant resources? I can't look up with a Google search. I'm hoping you know something I don't because I would happily volunteer some time. So I replied to John B. saying that a, a former uh, musician on our show, somebody who was a producer as well, on the original This Is Hell way back in 1996, is now active in Texas state politics. However, he's in Austin, not Houston. That said, I'm certain he could at least point John in the right direction, and so I have got John and former accordionist on our show, Dan Butler, in contact with each other. We also got a couple of emails to share with you later on the show. Coming up, the United States and its vaccine apartheid. We'll also tell you what's happening on our exclusive Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? As well as Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth during this week's moment, Jeff continues to try to spread positivity. And again, we have a couple more guest suggestions to share with you. Live from late capitalism, where property has more rights than people. This is hell. The United States has developed vaccines that can save the world from the COVID-19 pandemic. Considering the economic might and power of the United States, why doesn't the entire world already have at least one dose in their arms? Or at the very least, why can we not get everyone vaccinated, say, by the end of this year? Why do we have to wait until 2025, three years from now, if not more, until the world has access to U.S. vaccines? Doesn't that mean that there will be plenty of time for the virus to mutate again and again and again and create an even more transmissible, if not deadly, variant? Here to help us understand why effective vaccines are not more universally available, Kevin Kleiman wrote the Jacobin article, Vaccine Apartheid as a Reinforced U.S. Empire. Welcome to This Is Hell, Kevin. Hi, how's it going? Good. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin underscore Kleiman. That's K-L-Y-M-A-N. And he is co-author of the December Belfer Center Report, The Great Tech Rivalry, 
China versus the U.S. You write that when President Joe Biden announced in June that the United States would donate additional doses of the COVID-19 vaccine, he claimed it was a humanitarian gesture. Back in the early months of the pandemic in 2020, when Cuba was sending medical teams to places that were being hit hard by the pandemic, Reuters reported on March 25, 2020, communist-run Cuba said it dispatched a brigade of doctors and nurses to Italy for the first time this weekend to help in the fight against the novel coronavirus at the request of the worst affected region in Lombardy. This is the sixth medical brigade that Cuba has sent in recent days to combat the spread of the new diseases abroad. It has sent contingents to socialist allies, Venezuela and Nicaragua, as well as Jamaica, Suriname and Grenada. While supporters were calling this altruistic medical internationalism, others were dismissing, dismissively calling it vaccine diplomacy, as if Cuba was exploiting the pandemic to gain political points. Using those two as the parameters, Kevin, altruistic medical internationalism and exploitative vaccine diplomacy, where would you put the Biden plan to distribute vaccines around the world? Or is Biden's promise outside of that spectrum? I would say it's more of the latter. It's much closer to coercive and uh, exploitative attempts for political influence. And I think that the term vaccine diplomacy has been weaponized in the U.S. press such that it's been a PR success for the U.S. to say, well, you know, we have to win in diplomacy against our quote unquote rivals like China, Russia, et cetera, when in fact there would be no need for any vaccine diplomacy if we just equitably distributed vaccines to countries that are likely to have their medical systems collapse without access to the most effective vaccines, which are only produced in the U.S. And you quote President Biden saying, we are sharing these doses not to secure favors or extract concessions. We are sharing these vaccines to save lives and to lead the world in bringing an end to the pandemic with the power of our example and with our values. You write, this was a bold-faced lie. Where do you hear uh, Biden lying in that quote? And what do you think that says about our values? I think he's lying in a couple places here. One being that the U.S. is not trying to donate doses in order to secure favors or extract concessions, which is a clear parallel uh, trying to draw a contrast between China, Russia, and the U.S., where the U.S. is a benevolent empire that only does things that are in the best interest of the global order that it has established, and its quote-unquote rivals have in fact, undermined global cooperation by trading vaccines for favors. But what I outline in my piece is that the U.S. has donated doses and exported doses specifically to secure favors. In terms of what it says about our values, I think it's quite clear that we value the profits of big pharmaceutical corporations over the lives of hundreds of millions of people that have been upended by this virus, both in the United States where 900,000 people have died from the virus and abroad where we see some of the highest rates of transmission currently that we've ever seen. And we'll get to why you believe that we are uh, prioritizing those profits in a, in a moment. But you also write that the United States has repeatedly traded vaccines for political influence while upholding a system of vaccine apartheid. 
that guarantees vaccine scarcity in the global south and reinforces U.S. empire. When apartheid is used, it is when that term is used, it's not only a system of segregation and discrimination, but that discrimination and segregation is based on race. Is the vaccine apartheid that the United States is applying, that the Biden administration is applying at this moment, is that based more on wealth or is it based more on race? It's hard to draw the distinction because it obviously discriminates against people who live in poor countries and disproportionately disproportionately because of the white supremacist international system that we're in. Those people in poor countries are black and brown, indigenous, et cetera. And so it does discriminate along the lines of race, but the the mechanism by which that discrimination happens is the old systems of apartheid and colonialism that made sure that resources did not get to uh, countries in the global South. So I, I think I draw on Walter Rodney here and his book, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, in the idea that although there have been connections between the wealthy white global north and the global south for some time, those have always been predatory. So how does U.S. vaccine apartheid reinforce what you call U.S. empire, Uh, that uh, idea of uh, what happened with Europe and how they purposely underdeveloped uh, the uh, uh, third world, if you will, at the time, as it was referred to? Uh, uh, It sounds like exactly what the United States is in the process of doing. So how does U.S. vaccine apartheid reinforce what you call U.S. empire? So I make three arguments for how it reinforces U.S. empire. First is that it gives the U.S. more leverage over less wealthy countries or countries that it's allies with because they're dependent on the U.S. for vaccines rather than vaccines being bountiful throughout the world. Next, along the lines of what you were talking about, I say that vaccine apartheid maintains the precarity of poor countries, meaning that their food systems collapse, their medical systems collapse, and they are dependent on aid from Washington's international financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, which allows the World Bank and the IMF to help determine those countries' economic policies for the benefit of U.S. firms. And third, I say that vaccine apartheid helps U.S. empire by making sure that big pharma is mostly a U.S. phenomenon, where mRNA vaccines are a significant scientific breakthrough that could be used to solve a number of diseases and to really transform the global medical system. But by hoarding them, it means that the Department of Defense and other actors in the U.S. have exclusive access to those technologies. So leverage over poor countries, it maintains precarity, and it makes certain that the United States dominates, the United States pharmaceutical companies dominates pharmaceuticals globally. You also mentioned that members of the foreign policy establishment have leapt to Biden's defense, pointing out that China has also used its vaccines as a bargaining chip. They insist that Biden's vaccine diplomacy has been a force for good, but it is Washington, its European allies, and U.S. pharmaceutical companies, not China, that have blocked most of the world from obtaining vaccines. So is the real story not promises of distribution as much as it is how that distribution is being blocked? And if so, how does the U.S. block distribution? Yeah, I I agree with that, that blocking distribution is the main part of the story. And here I draw on activists in the Global South with the Access IPSA campaign, the most famous of which is Achal Prabhula, who's been on a number of podcasts, including The Dig. And those activists point out that Washington is blocking access to vaccines 
both by making sure that the intellectual property rights for those vaccines cannot be distributed widely, meaning that uh, if you were to try and make such a vaccine, then a lawsuit could be filed in international court and your company would be stopped, but also that the specific technologies that go along with not just the vaccine recipe, but the procedure for making those vaccines are tied up uh, in U.S. pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, the U.S. currently has a surplus of 630 million vaccine doses, and uh, wealthy countries on the whole have a surplus of 1.4 billion doses. So aside, aside from the intellectual property issues, if they were just to redistribute that surplus, that would go a long way towards ending vaccine apartheid, but they have no plans to do so. So in any way, do you or I as a U.S. citizen benefit in some way from vaccine apartheid? Is there some way in which that the benefits from that trickle down to us? Absolutely. I mean, I got my booster dose as soon as I could. I had gotten COVID before and I was really scared of what the impact of having it again might be. But there are many people in the world who haven't even gotten their first dose. As I write in the piece, only 1% of vaccine doses have been administered in poor countries. So the idea that I have access to a booster shot, well, someone who's much more likely to die from COVID because they don't have access to top rate healthcare in the global South, doesn't even get their first dose is ridiculous. So how aware of U.S. vaccine apartheid do you think the rest of the world is? Because I can't imagine this would be good for public relations. No, I don't think it is good for public relations. It depends on the country. uh, But there have been a couple major scandals where um, it's been crystallized for people around the world. So one being when vaccines that are produced in other countries are not used in those countries. I'm not 100% sure on this example, but I think that it was Johnson & Johnson in South Africa that was producing doses there, but not administering doses there. And that was just a a good example of how these PR scandals can in fact come back to hurt the US uh, in terms of its soft power. But that's not really how the US foreign policy establishment sees it. They see China and Russia as the evil empire and kind of whatever the U.S. does, as long as it's not Trump that's doing it, it's justified. You write the U.S. government has refused to share the vaccine recipes that have paid Moderna and Pfizer's billions to develop. Yet the media has taught us to refer to them as the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, which connotes that the vaccines were developed by the pharmaceutical companies, that they were the ones who, you know, it's it's just another success of capital competition, incentivization, innovation, and motivation, because they were the ones who invented them. So how misleading is it for the media and us to refer to the vaccines by the name of the company, company that distributed them and not the source that created them? And what does that mislead the public into believing? It's it's really misleading, and I think it's irresponsible of the corporate media to refer to them as such. Public Citizen refers to the Moderna vaccine as the NIH, National Institutes of Health, Moderna vaccine, because it was the NIH that provided a lot of the funding to Moderna, which is a relatively new company, and had already been doing research on mRNA vaccines to combat coronaviruses before the pandemic. That's why they were able to develop it so quickly. And... In terms of what the the narrative spin does for Americans, I think it persuades us that this is the best we're going to get. 
all we deserve is what you know the gods of big pharma choose to benevolently give to us. But in fact, it is the government paying companies to do this research, which might not pan out. You know, there weren't a lot of successes with mRNA vaccines before necessarily. And as a result, the companies have made record profits, uh, but the government has not been willing to recoup any of that. Even companies like Johnson & Johnson that have made huge missteps, they've still made record profits. You point out that the European Union has opposed a temporary waiver of intellectual property rights for vaccine technologies, preventing other countries from producing their own vaccine doses. So is it really not our fault, but it's all the EU's fault? Well, I agree with Daniel Bessner here, who's a writer in Jacobin as well, that the European Union is more of an extension of the United States than it's given credit for. So the U, as the current crisis in Ukraine indicates, the US back bankrolls almost all of European security. And through NATO, the US has formally agreed that Europe is part of its security architecture. So all that goes to say is that if the US wanted to waive, uh, uh, to issue a waiver on intellectual property rights for vaccines, they could. They have limitless leverage over the European Union, basically. Um, but that's not to say that the EU should get off scot-free. I mean, there was all this hagiography when Ang Angela Merkel retired as chancellor and saying that she is no longer the leader of the free world. But one of her last acts in office was to make sure that billions of people around the world won't get vaccinated for years because she wanted to make sure that BioNTech, the partner for Pfizer, could make as much money as, pro as possible. But you also point out that the Biden administration says it supports such an intellectual property waiver, but has failed to use its considerable influence to pressure the EU to come to the table. So has the U.S. waived intellectual property rights for the vaccine? I mean, that's what if the if the Biden administration supports that, have they already done so? They have not. So they support a waiver at the World Trade Organization uh, and at the World Trade Organization, this process goes by consensus. So every member of the World Trade Organization has to agree. And so while the Biden administration has said, we in theory support a waiver, no waiver has been written. So they don't support the actual text of a waiver, nor have they put forward a waiver at the World Trade Organization that they would support, nor, as I would point out, have they just made the Moderna and Pfizer recipes open and shareable. They could do that without, you know, messing around at the World Trade Organization, but they've opted not to because it's to their political benefit and it makes a lot of money for big pharma executives. So it sounds like the U.S. is using the WTO purposely to be an obstacle to have a worldwide distribution of mRNA vaccines. And intellectual property rights waiver has been debated in the WTO since the very beginning of the outbreak. Those debates have been heated at times, and they were getting a lot of international press. How important is that debate? And to you, what explains why the WTO intellectual property debate is not a bigger story in the establishment media? I mean, I thought that that would, you know, especially at the beginning of the uh, outbreak, I thought for sure that that should have been the top news story almost every day, because that's where the global debate was happening over the pandemic. Well, I think that it fits in the broader corporate media narrative that activists have nothing relevant to say. So, of course, the activists who are working in 
India, Brazil, South Africa, and other countries are still pushing every single day to make sure that the World Trade Organization grants their countries access to produce vaccines, which hundreds of factories around the world are ready to produce, as reporting in the, in the Intercept indicates. But the corporate media doesn't want to portray the US, Europe, its allies as being part of some sort of you know, neo-colonial enterprise. The idea is that we were racist until 1965, and then we stopped. And all of the crises that have happened, all of the coups that we've initiated, those have just been missteps, not part of any broader strategy or system. Uh, and if attention were to be put at the World Trade Organization on intellectual property rights for vaccines, what, uh, what other issues might be on the table? If it's not just intellectual property rights for mRNA vaccines, but intellectual property rights for all sorts of life-saving medications that could be waived, then and not just in pandemic times, that becomes a snowball that might be hard for the corporate media to stop. We are speaking with Kevin Kleiman, who wrote the Jacobin Magazine article, Vaccine Apartheid Has Reinforced U.S. Empire. Kevin is co-author of the December Belfer Center report, The Great Tech Rivalry, China versus the U.S. And you can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin underscore Kleiman. That's K-L-Y. M-A-N. You mentioned that while Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson initially sold 90% of their vaccines to rich countries and subsequently lobbied for money-making booster shots, Moderna outbid them by charging poor countries twice what it charges rich countries for vaccines. But wouldn't it make more sense to do the opposite if you're seeking profits? Why would pharmaceutical companies ask for more money from poorer nations instead of asking for more from the richer nations? Well, because the richer nations have bargaining power. So the richer nations can make demands and make threats against Moderna that might cause them to drive down their prices. Moderna is a relatively new company. It, came, it really came to being in 2010. And its only product is its mRNA vaccine, whereas Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson have many other products, You know, the cancer-causing baby powder for Johnson & Johnson and the Viagra that the Pentagon spends so much money on for Pfizer. But Moderna is counting on the profits from this vaccine to turn it into a pharmaceutical superpower. It has really skyrocketed in the stock market and doesn't look like it's going back. And so... There's nothing to stop it from making sure that poor countries lack access to the vaccine and they'll still have to pay. There's no other supplier, uh, you know, despite all of the promising results out of Cuba that has thus far begun um, global distribution. So are Pfizer and Moderna now part of the military industrial complex? Well, yes, Moderna received some funding from DARPA for its initial um, for its initial mRNA research, but they don't receive huge amounts of funding. It, it's nothing comparable to, you know, the tech industry, for instance, or uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, et cetera. Uh, but they do fit into this broader ecosystem where U.S. national interests play a role in their strategies because the U.S. government puts it maintaining vaccine apartheid above a number of other issues. And if they were to piss off the Biden administration, then the Biden administration can come back with regulation. You have pressure from Bernie and other people in Congress saying that we need to crack down on big pharma and drug companies. And instead, they're soaring in the stock market. 
You write that Pfizer and Moderna raked in record profits, but only 1% of vaccine doses have been administered in poorer countries, as you were mentioning earlier, leaving little prospect of vaccinating the world before 2025. To what extent is that a public health risk globally? And when it comes to, as you argue, this being caused by U.S. vaccine apartheid, how much of a risk does that vaccine apartheid pose to the U.S. public when it comes to our own health concerns? It poses a huge risk, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding here. When I talk with people in my life, they often say, well, you know, the Omicron variant is less severe, and the media says that that means that the pandemic will necessarily go away because we'll all gain immunity to it. But I think what people miss is what happened with the Delta variant, where the Delta variant got significantly more severe than the previous variants before it. And so the epidemiological data here is that uh, mutations in genes are random. So you're just as likely to have a beneficial mutation in the virus as you are a detrimental mutation in terms of its reproduction. All All that's to say is that when there are huge outbreaks that gives a great that increases the likelihood that omicron will mutate further into some terrible variant that might evade our vaccines even more so there's no strategy in the herd immunity approach that was adopted by britain and uh, the us at the beginning of the pandemic you also point out that the united states near monopoly on mrna vaccines gives it enormous leverage in negotiations with foreign governments and it has not been shy about using that power so how and why does the u.s have near monopoly control on mrna vaccines is it simply because we have better pharmaceutical experts that we are in somehow more advanced than other uh, nations are when it comes to pharmaceuticals we do have better pharmaceutical experts but that comes from a long history of the U.S. spending a large amount of money on biotech and on big pharma. And it's not just the private sector that's responsible here. It's U.S. industrial policy that happened throughout the late 20th century to build up U.S. universities as some of the top in the world in uh, biochemistry and, and the like, and making sure that those companies have government backing in basically whatever they do to protect their intellectual property rights. So if you look at the medications that were developed to stop HIV AIDS, those medications similarly were hoarded and the intellectual property rights were given to U.S. companies regardless of the mass suffering that was happening as a result. So I think this is part of a long history of the U.S. building up its pharmaceutical industry such that we have the best drugs, but then hoarding those drugs and using it to gain influence wherever we want. And you point out that when three U.S. senators visited Taiwan in June, they committed to sending 750,000 doses to Taiwan in order to reduce its reliance on Beijing. Biden separately committed to sharing existing doses with countries in Asia, but Cambodia and Myanmar were excluded from the program because their governments favored China. What does a nation need to do to get in the good graces of the United States in order to get access to a vaccine that can save them from the pandemic? A vaccine, as you describe, the U.S. controls due to a near monopoly. Well, based on these examples, all they have to do is oppose China. All they have to do is say, 
Xi Jinping is a tyrant and uh, you know, the U.S. has a right to maintain its security position in East Asia and South Asia. And as I write in the piece, there's a new anti-China military alliance that's been initiated in the last two years called the Quad between the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia. And those countries are trying to share military technologies such that if there were a war with China, the U.S. would be more likely to come out ahead. Now, depending on the scale of the war, uh, the U.S. would probably lose uh, a significant amount of ground. But the U.S. is eager for any and all allies that it can get in its ongoing uh, low-grade war against China. And so if you come out as a U.S. ally, then sure, you can get some vaccine doses. So, again, you are co-author of the December Belfer Center report, The Great Tech Rivalry, China versus the United States. How much of a threat is the Quad to, or how much is it perceived as a threat to China? Uh, How much is is that a provocation even to the potential for war? It's hard to say because the alliance is so new, but the best example uh, is the offshoot of it which is the new Australia, U.S. and U.K. alliance, where the U.S. ripped up a French submarine deal with Australia and instead provided Australia with nuclear-powered submarines. Um, And that was viewed as a significant provocation, where China threatened export restrictions on Australia, and it seems that relations between China and Australia have soured since then. Um, So I would say that it's a big provocation to be stationing military equipment in uh, China's backyard. Of course, the the elephant in the room there is with Taiwan, where the U.S. has sold huge amounts of arms, uh, even though the U.S. in 18 of the 18 of the last 18 war games between the U.S. and China over Taiwan, the U.S. loses every single time. So the U.S. is not likely to win a military conflict over Taiwan, but it continues stationing military hardware there. You point out that the U.S. has also blocked vaccines from reaching countries whose governments it has actively worked to topple, such as Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has falsely claimed the United States won't trade shots and arms for political favors. This is about saving lives. To what extent do you think this is underreported and thus the U.S. public is unaware? How much do you think the U.S. public is totally fine with using the vaccine to reward our friends and and punish our enemies? Because this seems like a a very conservative response by a supposedly centrist liberal presidential administration and political party. So do you think the public is fine with the U.S. leveraging uh, the vaccines to punish our enemies and reward our friends? It's hard to know. As far as I can tell, there's no data on it. I have read papers indicating that when China gives vaccines to countries in Latin America, those uh, citizens in those countries view China more positively, but I don't know how Chinese citizens feel about it. My view is that if people knew the whole story, they knew that the system of vaccine apartheid is actually not in the long-term benefit of U.S. citizens or its allies, then they might see that risking much worse outbreaks is not worth trying to topple the governments in Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. And I agree. I think the coverage of Biden has been very soft, where 
uh, John Bolton, Trump's attack dog, called these countries the troika of tyranny and explicitly said that we should enact more sanctions and try to take out their governments and do regime change. Biden has been less loud about it, but he hasn't given them any vaccines. And in doing so, he's helped worsen economic crises in those countries. So is U.S. vaccine apartheid, in your opinion, is it bipartisan, is using the vaccine for political leverage rather than administering it like a global public health concern? Is that bipartisan policy? Can we vote these policies out of power? It is bipartisan. And the Trump administration made similar moves and tried to gain influence in Brazil by providing access to vaccines and try to prevent China from giving access to vaccine, giving access to vaccines to Brazil. Um, in terms of voting out these policies, I think, yes, I think that if there were more leftist Democrats in Congress, then they would be able to put more pressure on Big Pharma and on the Biden administration to make sure that we are, in fact, distributing our excess vaccine doses at minimum, that rich countries have an extra 1.4 billion doses and that poor countries need something along the lines of 870 million doses just to reach 40% vaccination is an outrage. And if there were more people in Congress that put people over profits, then yes, I think some of these policies could get changed. So what is your hope that the Democratic Party would run such candidates? It's not very high, given all of the opposition to progressives in primary challenges last time around. But as we saw with Jamal Bowman and, and you know, Mondar Jones and a number of other real progressives uh, that have been elected, there is hope that progressive policies appeal to voters. Uh, but in the pandemic, it's hard to turn people out because people are scared to come and vote due to the virus. But you also point out that last year, Beijing donated vaccines to Algeria in exchange for a promise that the country would soften its stance on human rights violations in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. So is the U.S. doing anything differently than the rest of the world? Does the world, not just the U.S., engage in vaccine apartheid or at least the nations that have vaccines? So the world does. Every country that can exchanges vaccines for political influence. But I point out that there are a couple distinctions between at least what the U.S. and China are doing. One being that the U.S. is the country that at the World Trade Organization and in negotiations with its own pharmaceutical companies has promoted vaccine apartheid and has decided that it is okay for millions of people to die around the world if that makes big pharma CEOs slightly richer. And another distinction is that the U.S.'s mRNA vaccines are the most effective vaccines. So it is the U.S. that has the obligation, in my view, to share this effective technology and to make sure that we can reduce the spread of the virus. China has just come out with its own preliminary results on its mRNA vaccine, and those are promising. But we won't know until it's deployed on a large scale because the U.S. vaccines have been deployed and uh, have ha have helped uh, a huge swath of people not get infected.
You write that vaccine apartheid has bolstered the United States' mythical role as the indispensable nation upon which the global South must depend for economic development and security. By maintaining the precarity of poor countries, the United States ensures that it can keep them under its thumb. So is the U.S. seen more as a savior curing the world with its vaccines or a captor holding the rest of the world's lives hostage? I don't know what people are saying in other countries as I haven't been able to travel uh, since the pandemic. But my view is that uh, the people who are in ministries of health, the officials at the World Health Organization who work on these issues on a day-to-day basis around the world, they know that it is the US that's holding other countries hostage. And top UN officials have said, have called out vaccine apartheid by name and have said that the US and other rich countries need to stop with the bullshit and need to actually distribute the extra doses that they have and stop this global crisis before it gets even more out of control. You write, consider the actions of U.S.-dominated international financial institutions during the pandemic. The World Bank and the IMF have ignored calls for a debt jubilee that would free up public resources for vaccinations. Meanwhile, nearly half of all jobs in Africa are at risk of being lost as a result of the pandemic and its concomitant economic shocks. Who would qualify for debt forgiveness and how far would debt forgiveness go toward ending uh, vaccine apartheid? After all, as you point out, geopolitics are also involved in the considerations over who gets the vaccine and who does not. So how far would a jubilee go toward ending vaccine apartheid? A jubilee would go a long way towards ending vaccine apartheid. There are 72 countries that borrow from the World Bank Uh, that would qualify for debt relief or a jubilee. And those countries have to divert money away from their hospitals, away from vaccination campaigns, away from PPE, uh, away from just buying vaccines or trying to develop their own production hubs for syringes and the like, because they know that they will have to pay the debts that they owe to the World Bank. And if they don't pay those debts, then the World Bank will come calling and will restructure the debts even worse. So, I mean, there are significant countries that would be left out. So for instance, the World Bank now deems India to be a lower middle income country. So it does not even qualify for uh, massive debt relief, even though it has the largest number of people in extreme poverty. So of course it's a faulty definition, but freeing up billions of dollars to go into hospitals, to go into tracking the virus, that would make a huge dent in countries that right now just don't have the vaccines. So how bad is debt forgiveness for the global economy? After all, if these debts are owed by the world's largest lenders, while profits may not trickle down, losses do. Profits are privatized and losses are socialized. How bad would debt forgiveness be for the global economy, which affects all of us? I don't know that debt forgiveness would have a huge uh, consequence for the global economy. I agree that the losses are socialized, but the World Bank and the IMF are not tied to the traditional economy in ways that at least Wall Street has a, a good idea, a good handle on. So the World Bank and the IMF might shudder. They might not have enough money, which in the medium term could screw over some countries that need that money or that need investment to leverage up. Um, But I would say 
the bigger concerns for the global economy are the supply chain crises that are being caused in part by the U.S.'s war with China and, uh, you know, the country's uh, country's unwillingness to support people's basic needs with stimulus, even while we're in the middle of a pandemic because of the boogeyman of inflation. So is debt forgiveness, is a debt jubilee a threat to U.S. power? It is. It would mean that the U.S. has less economic leverage over the countries that it keeps in debt. Uh, but, you know, there are, diff- there are different schools of thought here. There are some people who believe that soft power is a really important part of the way that the U.S. has maintained its influence. And so if you subscribe to that school, then you would say that forgiving debts and helping end the pandemic could really be a PR win for the U.S. and it could make it the country that, uh, you know, solved this global crisis. I think that's what some people in the Biden administration think, even though they're not doing anything similar. But at the same time, the hard power that comes with keeping people in indentured servitude by holding debts over their over their head, that would vanish. And that might mean that countries can band together to do their own cross-border investments and not rely on some of the wealthiest countries in the world to prop up their economies. You write another way that vaccine apartheid uh, buttresses U.S. empires by strengthening big pharma's stranglehold on the global biotechnology industry. mRNA vaccines are a significant scientific breakthrough with the potential to eradicate diseases such as HIV, tuberculosis, malaria. If Pfizer and Moderna were to partner with firms in other countries to mainstream these technologies, they could potentially transform medicine by building out advanced manufacturing hubs throughout the world. So that sounds like a really good long-term investment for big pharma. It sounds like a, a, a possible healthcare success and also a very profitable venture. If it is the case that this could be transformative, creating manufacturing hubs globally, what is the likelihood big pharma will go in this direction that both saves lives and can make fortunes? To me, it seems low. Based on the ideologies that dominate pharmaceutical companies, it seems like what they will do instead is they'll race with each other to be the first that has an mRNA vaccine for HIV or tuberculosis or malaria. And once they have it, they'll monopolize it. They'll patent it and make sure that it's in scarce supply and build their profits in that way. That's the model that they've used for you know half a century now. And I don't see them as saying, actually, this is a social good that can and should be distributed around the world. And even though it's low margin to build out manufacturing hubs in countries like Bangladesh and India, uh, countries throughout Latin America, we can do this. And over time, it'll be a consistent profit stream. I think all they see is the dollar signs that comes with uh, patents and with being able to charge the highest price as Martin Shkreli did. And you point out that, you know, throughout our conversation that vaccine apartheid is another step in the process of U.S. global dominance continuing even after the pandemic, if there is an after the pandemic. So how much is vaccine apartheid a threat to U.S. national security and geopolitical power? Because I cannot imagine any of this is going over well with nations that are still suffering and will continue to suffer the most from the newest variants caused by continuing vaccine apartheid is withholding the vaccine from less wealthy nations and those not seen as friendly with the United States by our government, a threat to our national security here in the United States? I believe it is. I think that 
as as I argue, this is a strategy that is not being carried out by scheming masterminds, but by incompetent bureaucrats, liberals that don't know what they're doing. And it's very easy to see how this could backfire against U.S. national security, where countries around the world have been seen clamoring for vaccines and we're being seen saying, let them eat cake. That means that the next time there's a global crisis, trust in the U.S. will be down and it'll be easier for other countries to band against the U.S. and oppose whatever the foreign policy establishment deems to be U.S. interests. I think that there are cases to be made for both sides, that it does, in fact, strengthen the U.S.'s leverage over other countries. But leverage is just one facet in what upholds an empire. And I think that the the visibility into the way that the U.S. has cut countries off and prolonged the crisis means that it's much easier to see that uh, there could be drawbacks to this strategy, even uh, just from a purely pro-U.S. stance. We have been speaking with Kevin Kleiman, who wrote the Jacobin Magazine article, Vaccine Apartheid has Reinforced U.S. Empire. You can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kevin underscore Kleiman. And again, I would strongly suggest you check out the paper that he co-authored, the December Belfer Center report, The Great Tech Rivalry, China versus the U.S. One last question for you, Kevin, and as I promise that we do this with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And I know that this is uh, maybe even touch on conspiracy theory, and I'm not trying to put it in that framework, but I want to make sure that you understand that I understand that can be a problem with this question. Is the problem that there is more money in maintaining resistance to viruses rather than eradicating their efforts and or their effects? And if so, can that be overcome? It's hard to put a dollar value on it, but for some companies, yes, I think there is more money in having the cure and not using it than in distributing the cure to the world. And I think the way to stand up to that is simple. We just say that that's not acceptable. And we join with the activists around the world who are saying that vaccine apartheid must end and it's in the world's interest to get everyone vaccinated and to see the other side of this pandemic. And if there are actors that are working to prolong the pandemic, they have to be ostracized, they have to be fought against, and we can mobilize against them and win. Well, that's an optimistic end to a very pessimistic article, or not article, but conversation. Kevin, thank you very much for being on our show. This is a a really great angle and an analysis that is not being heard elsewhere. So I really appreciate you being on our show today. Thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And if that conversation with Kevin Lyman on U.S. vaccine apartheid was in some way informative, enlightening, or made you realize, yes, this really is hell, show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support and checking out all the different ways you can support This Is Hell. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listening audience is responding. This week's question from hell is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? We only got a couple more, so I'll just do a little bit and then the two more after Jeffy. Sure. Um, Neil C. says, when I've gotten back to blaming myself for everything. (laughs) That's pretty good. Tyler R. says, pandemic? What pandemic? (laughs) 
Qnl uh, says, soon as all the good bars and live houses close and prices to do anything fun skyrocket, <laughs> things will open back up again. <laughs> and then finally, via email, DM, etc., 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 Vesef says, there is no end, only Zool. Who was the one? Who was the one who SF. was talking about bars? Uh, that was QNL. Yeah, I just want to point out that that's something that I've heard uh, many bar owners, not just the one downstairs. Many bar owners tell me that they are afraid that it's you know the, there's a really great likelihood that a lot of bars and restaurants are going to be closing due to the pandemic, and then all of the bars are going to be owned by corporations like Blackstone, who have come in and bought up all those properties and are now leasing them out and making them into. The opposite of what you want in a public house. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And again, if you want to show your support for This Is Hell, become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell on this week's Patreon podcast. Liberals seem to not understand why anyone would join the militia movement that a recent guest told us is getting more secretive, violent, and extremist. If you tuned into the January 21st Patreon podcast, you heard me talk about the shift in the movement away from legitimizing their behavior via the Constitution. Now they look to conspiracies, not the Constitution, for defense of their beliefs and implementation of their values and a cause for their motivations. Following that Patreon podcast... Later that evening, I received a copy of the Small Town Weekly newspaper that I got a subscription to as a Christmas gift this holiday season. And lo and behold, right there on the Your Opinion section, it reveals exactly why someone would want to join a militia. And that is, we are facing a spiritual war. With so much news breaking in the last week about wealthy donors to conservative causes funding campaigns to ban books from schools and white nationalists flocking to the anti-abortion movement, not to mention the deifying of billionaires, as we discussed when talking to Corey Pine about billionaires in space earlier this week. There's been lots of news regarding those that liberals may dismiss as crazy. But here's the thing. They're not crazy. In fact, from their perspective, seeking out a militia may be the most rational thing someone can do. Remember that old adage in an insane world, a sane person must appear insane. And maybe that's what's going on with liberals not understanding the militia movement. That's not to say I'm signing up to a militia this week, but by understanding the thinking behind joining, instead of dismissing them outright, we may attain a better understanding of the many divisions here in the United States today. Also on Patreon, we're setting the Wayback Machine to 15 years ago to find out what the hell we were talking about back then, and it turns out it's something that has a lot to do with the motivations of potential militia movements, especially in rural America. This week, we're sharing our February 7th, 2007 conversation with sociologist Harwood Schaefer. He is a research associate in the University of Tennessee's Agriculture Policy Analysis Center, and he worked with the senators or the center's director, Daryl Hay, on their just-posted-at-the-time counterpunch piece, Do Industrial Farms Harm Small Communities? Why the Family Farm is Good for Rural America. Harwood is also an ordained minister and has worked with farm families throughout the Midwest. With the loss of the family farm, many rural area residents have struggled, not only financially, but when it comes to their, their very identity as well. And 15 years ago, Harwood could read the writing on the wall, and it was saying the end of the family farm does not bode well for rural communities, which means this week on Patreon, we'll introduce you to a holy warrior who is ready to do battle over U.S. spirituality and share a conversation from 15 years ago about the threat to the family farmer and what it might mean for our future, which is now sadly 
our present. But if you want to hear any and all of that, subscribe to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live every Friday and a podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash this is hell. It looks like I'm going to have to share this guest suggestion for next week. I will be telling you about that, I guess, next week. Something about, uh, let's just say it's about Stephen Donzinger, and I'll tell you about that later. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing our winner. And we'll also tell you who is on next week's show. And we do have one more guest suggestion a listener sent to us here at Chuck at com. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. I know you have. Hefe on the line. What? At peace with imbalance. Welcome to the moment of truth. The thirst that is the drink. Not to be self-deprecating at all, but I am a lousy Buddhist. It's one reason I don't walk around advertising myself as a Buddhist. Gandhi, in the movie Gandhi, starring Ben Kingsley as the eponymous Mahatma, said something like, I am a Hindu and a Muslim and a Buddhist and a Christian and a Jew and so are all of you. Now stop this nonsense. Stop it. Stop it. Remember that? Yeah, that was cool. I think what makes me such a lousy Buddhist is my predilection toward resentment. I'm a hater. I'm a resentful guy. I'm envious of all the people whose grass is always greener than mine. In a way, it makes me the perfect Buddhist. Everyone can see right through to the unappealing core. I have no Buddhist-style charisma. There's absolutely no danger of me ever collecting a following. Not like that Thich Nhat Hanh. By the time he died, he was the most famous Buddhist in the world. Doesn't mean he was the best, of course. We don't do that kind of comparison stuff in the global community of worldwide Buddhists. But when it comes to fame, number of monasteries, nuns, monks, Thich Nhat Hanh, his mindfulness brand, and his Plum Village tradition were way out in front of the Buddhist pack. Thich Nhat Hanh died a handful of days ago, is why I bring him up. He went back to Vietnam in 2018 because he wanted to die there. He'd had a stroke and felt health-wise the writing was on the wall. Some 10 years before the stroke, his attempts to unite his Plum Village tradition with other Buddhists in Vietnam without somehow speaking out against government actions most Vietnamese Buddhists considered repression led to a lot of negative press that he was collaborating to help Hanoi be seen as honoring religious freedom. Later on, some things he said supposedly led China to protect, to pressure Hanoi to make the Plum Village order unwelcome. If he had been hoping somehow to play both ends against the middle, it backfired. His followers were forcibly ejected from their residence in Vietnam by police-led mobs, and he was understood to be persona non grata in the country. But He'd been a controversial figure in Buddhism from the beginning, always getting on the bad side of higher-ups in Buddhist universities for his teachings, which apparently weren't conservative enough, always coming to the aid of those put in difficulty by the U.S. war, opposing President Diem's program to turn Buddhists into Catholics. Those hot-headed young monks are never conservative enough, are they? 
And when I say hot-headed, I'm not obliquely referring to Tikwang Duk, the monk who set himself on fire in June 1963 in what was then Saigon to protest the U.S.-supported government's repression of Buddhism and attempts to Catholicize the South, just talking about young hotheads in general. They're never conservative enough, are they, those young hotheads? Thich Nhat Hanh spent some time in the early to mid-1960s in the USA, where he met poet, activist, theologian, and Trappist monk Thomas Merton. Yeah, all of those in one guy. He also met MLK in 1966. He urged the civil rights leader to speak out against the U.S. war in Indochina. In 1967, King did indeed give a speech denouncing the war and putting opposition to it into the context of a continuing global struggle for the rights of the poor and colonized. King also tried to persuade the Nobel Committee to award the Peace Prize to Thich Nhat Hanh. The following year, King was assassinated. Thich Nhat Hanh moved to Paris in 1966. Paris is where all charismatic leaders go while waiting to return to their home countries. Trotsky, Lenin, Ho Chi Minh, Ayatollah Khomeini, Miles Davis. When Vietnam won the war, Thich Nhat Hanh was not allowed to return there. The new communist government was suspicious of him. After all, he was a Buddhist and partly educated in the West. When he began rescuing boat people fleeing overzealous reprisals against whoever the new government deemed in their understandable paranoia to have been collaborators with the South, his efforts were stopped by the governments of Singapore and Thailand. Stuck again, as he would later be stuck between the Hanoi government and the Buddhists outside his order in Vietnam, he was always getting it, coming and going. Those hotheads, I tell you, they're just magnets for trouble. Not Han sometimes called his mindfulness discipline engaged Buddhism. But how much exactly was he engaged? It would certainly have been a bit much to expect him to set himself on fire in protest of the U.S. war against the demonized nationalist liberation fighters in Vietnam, which became a war against the entire region by numerous creepy imperialist interests, interests still plying their trade in global death and destruction within and parallel to the U.S. government to this day. Yet he does connect mindfulness with the goal of creating a better world, even in a Buddhist cosmology wherein suffering is inevitable. Did he help create a better world by guiding individuals toward repairing their undisciplined, benighted inward selves? Was that the best use of his charisma, wisdom, and position to communicate? Did it balance fairly that betterment against the acceptance of hundreds of thousands of dollars in euros from reasonably well-off Westerners to give them a brief taste of monastic living? Is the billion or so dollar a year mindfulness industry a way to heal the world or merely a way to salve souls long enough to enable them to operate in a society that is just going to wound them again while killing all that's good in the world? I don't have the ability to make that judgment. I have the inclination because of my lousiness as a Buddhist and in general as a bitch. But when I think about the tens of millennia we've been human, and the drastic lack of progress we've made, replacing one brutal structure of repression with a new, sleeker, shinier, more efficient, maybe more user-friendly one, time after time, I have to wonder, 
Is anything more worthwhile than what peace and well-being you are able to find within yourself at the present moment? Are you not more able to contribute to the well-being of others when you make yourself capable of honoring their wisdom? And if you find no wisdom there, honoring and bringing out whatever is honorable that you can salvage? That's what we all wonder sometimes when we're wondering, isn't it? Or am I alone in this? I mean, if you're all truly certain of what to do all the time, that's great. No, actually, it's scary. If you're a tough, self-reliant, sovereign citizen, armed to the teeth, ready to protect by brute strength what you know in your heart is rightfully yours no matter who else suffers, hey, don't let me spoil that for you, but you are wrong. You we don't need. You I wish there were fewer of. You need to change or perish. You will have no place in the new world except in exile on an inescapable penal island. But if you can maintain a level of tranquil presence, while at the same time realizing that every part of the world is off balance simply by its nature, including your own tranquil presence, maybe that's not such a bad frame of mind. Maybe that's not a bad way to approach this near future that promises among its drastic transformations new possibilities. That's the moment of truth. Good day. Hey, speaking of brutal structures of repression, what's being built next door to you? Some brutal structure of repression. <laughs> a a, a seven-story apartment building. It's going to block out the sun uh, and I think create a parking disaster in the neighborhood. So, so how big is the building you're in? Oh, it's, two, it's a two-story dingbat. And so, what what's replacing what was uh, what was there in this where the seven story building is being built? What what is it replacing? There was a weird fire hazard art compound uh, that was, you know, I, the, I I think I've 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 posted pictures of it. it's like there was like a field of wheat that they would sort of put there like a decorative field of wheat in the fall they would always have this like fall little and then they'd have miniature farmhouses and miniature things and little picnic benches oh, crazy. and it out it was really nuts and they would throw axes in the back and they would have incredibly <laughs> loud music performances out there uh then during covid that those things kind of died down and then uh, a developer bought that land and started putting this chunk up so did you like them as neighbors they were fine they weren't the worst they invited me over but i could never figure out how to knock on the door and get in. <laughs> it's like a labyrinth it really was it was like what what how do i get to the miniature wheat field <laughs> it was bizarre yeah there's just a there, whatever i mean i can't say this is gentrifying because it's always i mean it it's been a little dumpy but uh, it's been gentrifying for a long time. They've closed a lot of good things and little little independent stores and and cheap restaurants and crazy old movie theaters and stuff. And they're just putting up a bunch of uh, I don't know expensive uh, housing. Although I guess some is supposed to be uh affordable you know affordable. Mm -hmm. what a joke what does affordable even mean i don't know and who are those affordable for why can't i qualify for any of those free that's should be free (laughs) free is affordable (laughs) free is like free is universally affordable then they don't have skin in the game and that's important my friend 
Oh, they would have skin in the game because if they had people living in free housing in their otherwise for sale or for rent building, those people would affect, you know, the atmosphere in the building and the the uh, upkeep of the building. The And their actual uh, physical damage. skin would be in the game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, they'd have to take care of people a little bit to make them not resent them and set the building on fire. <laughs> All right, Jeffy, on that note. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, please remind us what is this week's question from Hell and tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding. This week's question from Hell is, how will you know when the pandemic is over? How will you know when the pandemic is over? Old pals, hypocrite readers say, when the Lamb hath opened the seventh seal. <laughs> Andrew J. says, I will know when the pandemic is over when Easter arrives. What? And then finally, Eat Fart 69, old pal says, just like when we found out the BLM movement was successful and no longer needed, once Pelosi and company kneel while wearing scrubs. <laughs> oh, God. And then finally, wow. Shane M. says, when everyone is dead. Wow, Shane M., when everyone is dead. Okay, the answers I like the most were Shane M. saying, when everyone is dead. Kim G saying when Bill Gates flips the switch. David S saying when the dove returns in the evening with a fresh olive leaf in its beak. Or when we're all dead. So I guess he's upping Shane M there. Chad F saying when Windows 12, I mean the next pandemic is ready for launch. Warren L saying legends say Robin will crow at midnight and rivers will flow backwards. I think they're supposed to flow with blood backwards. Uh, Wojciech saying when I get an official diagnosis of agoraphobia, I said that was a fear of everything. That's a fear of not being in control of your situation. So just a correction there. And Eve saying when we all finally catch the Omega variant. That makes this week's winner to the question from hell, how will you know when the pandemic is over? The winner is Eve, who said, when we all finally catch the Omega variant. Congratulations, Eve. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. That is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll get it in the mail to you post haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, how will you know when the pandemic is over? I will know the pandemic is over when I am sitting in a bar stool. On a bar stool, I should say, with my feet on the rail, drinking a draft beer I cannot buy at the store and bring home with me, completely sitting there, completely unmasked and not distanced from anyone, then stepping out to the beer garden and putting a thoink in the air with friends and those who will soon be friends during this is hell office hours. That's when I will definitely know the pandemic is over. And hope you will all be able to join me when and if that day comes. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we know who's going to be on next week's show? A thoink? Yes. Ooh, I like it. I know, right? Uh, we just know Mondays. I'm waiting for Tuesday, Wednesday. People get back to me. But on Monday, Catherine McNichol Stock will be on to talk about her article. Is the rally really worth it? The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally and the Costs of Neoliberalism. That sounds so yeah, good. I'm excited for this I'm one. really looking forward to that. We start every week's live streaming. I love the idea of them all being really rich dudes who can afford very expensive Harley Davidsons and stripping away that whole idea that these are working class people who are enjoying them their time in Sturgis. I mean, some are, but I'm telling you. 
you try to pay $15,000 more than you should for a motorcycle by riding an Indian or a Harley Davidson. $40,000 those things, that's way overpriced. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's cure is water, lemon, juice, ginger, and turmeric, which was posted in a video online by someone trying to become famous, and that's why we aren't mentioning the place where you can find it or the person who posted it. Thanks to this week's guests in order. Corey Pine, who wrote the Baffler article, Dawn of the Space Lords. Billionaires have big plans to expand their dominion. You can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Pine. That's P-E-I-N. Thanks to Ashwin Ravikumar, who wrote the Trouble article to save the rainforest, provide health care, education, and services for those who protect them. And thanks to today's guest, Kevin Kleiman, who wrote the Jacobin article, Vaccine Apartheid as Reinforced U.S. Empire. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing today's show. Also, thanks to Richard Norwood and Sebastian Vupper for running the board this week. Thanks to all of Alex's producing throughout the week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special Thanks to Thurn Humiston, just because. Talk to you on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, where we will hear from a potential military or militia recruit about his own personal spiritual war. And we share an interview from 15 years ago about the looming threat to the family farm from industrial agriculture. Finally, as I was mentioning earlier, we got one more guest suggestion this week, and this one comes from Mike S. Mike writes, hello, Chuck and Alex. I was wondering if you would ever consider having a video essayist on as a guest on the show. I know you don't normally use video essays as a source for guests and discussion topics on This Is Hell, but this video by Dan Olson on cryptocurrency and NFTs is quite good. It discusses how they relate to the financialization of everything, which is an evergreen This Is Hell discussion, unfortunately. As a bonus, I've also included a video essay on QAnon from September 2020 that is pretty trippy to watch post-January 6th. Cheers, Mike. So, no, Mike, we have not had YouTubers, if you will, as guests on the show simply because of something they posted on YouTube. Then, after yesterday's show, Sebastian Vupper asked me the exact same question about the exact same topic in reference to the exact same potential guest. And I guess I will be watching YouTube videos about NFTs this weekend to determine if Dan Olson will make a good guest. If you are familiar with Dan Olson's work, tell me. So I don't have to watch. Tell me what you think by emailing at chuck at thisishell.com. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by turning your palms towards the sky. Sitting down in the lotus position, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.